icon. For those of you I've not yet met, I just want to say after service, I would, I would love to, to meet you. My name is Josh, and like I said, I, I serve as the lead pastor here at Icon. So if you will actually remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading for today comes out of Luke 2, starting in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law, every, man who, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul also so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, I thank you for your word that every single week we get to come together and gather around what you have said to us. And, and I thank you and bless you that you helped the, the, the physician Luke to remember this moment and to record it for us so that we might be encouraged. And I pray, God, that, that you would give us the grace to see the, the promise that is here and what communicates to us the hope that we have in Christ. So would you give us hope in this Advent season? Would you give us peace and would you help us forward to that next coming of Jesus where we would have hope and peace again? We trust you for it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jude, am I good? <laughs> Handheld? Oh, man. <laughs> Got the handheld. Well, dumpster fire. An exceedingly chaotic or disastrous situation. Every year, the American Dialect Society chooses a word of the year, and in January, its members convene in order to choose a word that really defines what that preceding year was. And this word, dumpster fire, is what they chose for 2016. As I'm sure you remember, 2016 was a year of significant political upheaval with the Unlikely election of Donald Trump that shocked the world and every political elite. And this unlikely election sent ripples through American society and in many caused a sense of disillusionment or even panic. And so, 
In the wake of this panic, the American Dialect Society chose dumpster fire as the word of the year. In their thinking, 2016 was defined as a exceedingly disastrous or chaotic situation. But now, in 2021, we look back and think, that's cute. (laughs) We know that the American Dialect Society probably should have reserved that word for what was to come in the last couple years. Dumpster fire. An exceedingly disastrous or chaotic situation. Much of what we have experienced, friends, over the last couple of years falls right within that category. Disastrous, check. Chaotic, check. Exceedingly disastrous and chaotic, check. And what's so painful is that the pain or exhaustion or burnout we all feel right now is the accumulation of, of more than just one year. We, we ended 2020 with a sigh of relief in some ways, hoping against hope that 2021 would be, be a year of, of turning back toward normal. And though this last year has certainly seen some glimpses of normal, it has in no way provided the sense of relief that we need. This year has been one of deep pain, stacked upon the pain of 2020. And I I want us to to feel that today, to to really remember all that we have collectively gone gone through together as a society and as our world, what has gone on in 2021, and just simply feel the weight of that. And so to do that, I have a number of pictures that I want to show you that were all taken within this year. And I would, I would love for us to just silently look at those. We'll, we'll, each one will be up there for about 10 seconds, and then we'll come back and talk about it. But let's, let's reflect on this year. This is the world we live in. Such pain. The, those snapshots of 2021 document for us death, Natural disaster, political turmoil, abuses of power, and the desperation of refugees. And these are just a hand-picked few of the many pictures that could sum up 2021. And what, what of the moments that were not documented? What about those moments of personal crisis? No camera documented for us mental breakdowns in the kitchen or shouting matches between spouses or children who are starving and aching for loving attention. With such pain, dumpster fire feels almost irreverent. It doesn't accurately capture just how many tears have been cried or even lives have been lost in this year of 2021. If we're paying attention, we must close this year asking this question. When will relief come? When will relief come? And there are many possible answers to this. Maybe when COVID is over, right? And then comes another variant. Maybe when we get the the right people in office, yet we've had a complete changing of the political guard and we feel no more the better for it. Or maybe we can repeat that same old fallacy that we do every December, next year will be better. (laughs) What if I, what I want to tell you today, friends, 
is that should any of that happen, should COVID ever go away, should your select politicians make it, or should this or should that, it would be the equivalent of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. We're just simply making ourselves a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more at ease on a ship that's already doomed to go down. But, but that question of relief is a persistent one. And it should be. Relief feels possible and on our most optimistic days almost feels inevitable. We can't leave that question alone. When will relief come? And we should not leave it alone. What we should do and, and what, I, uh, what we are invited to do in this Advent season specifically is fix our hope of relief on what the Bible tells as God's promised end to this whole story. And that, that's what I want to cover today, okay? Today, we're, we're, we're going to look at this text in Luke 2 and first see a little bit of what it means for God to be a, a promise-making God, and then we'll spend the majority of our time uh, unpacking a specific promise of God that connects with this season of Advent. So let's, let's jump in to Luke 2. At, so at this point in the, the, the nativity narrative, Jesus has already been born, right? So far, there have been songs and poems about the birth of Jesus, and he has finally arrived. And after his birth, Mary and Joseph take him to the temple in order to dedicate him to the Lord. And there they find a man, as we see, named Simeon. And Simeon, as we see from the text, is a devout man who had been given a specific and certain promise. The text says that that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Meaning that he, he was waiting for the day when God would return to Israel in order to save them from their sins and establish himself again as their ruler. That's what Simeon was waiting on. And Simeon, in this devotion, has been given a, a promise by God that connected with his waiting. God, somehow by the Holy Spirit, had, had promised this man that he would not see death until he saw the Christ, the the one who would embody God visiting Israel again and bringing that consolation that they're waiting on. And and in this story, there's a lot that we could could pick up on, right? There's so much in just these little verses that we could really focus on for a sermon. Uh, Reading the the narrative genre, specifically in the Gospels, is is almost like a, a thermographic map. Right, like there's there's red spots, there's orange, there's yellow, and then there's green. It's there's a variation of what the story is trying to tell us, and in this specific story, the 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 red hot genre, the red hot piece of this story is talking about this specific promise both to Israel and Simeon by by sending the Christ. But just adjacent to that in this text is this: Simeon is a type or an example of what the normal Christian should be doing. What is he doing that us as Christians should follow or imitate? He is living by the promises of God. His whole life was oriented around the the promises of God. The fact that that God made this promise to him 
shows that he was a man who was looking for what God had already promised. And his daily life was centered around looking for the fulfillment of those promises, right? It says that on this day where it happened, he came into the temple in the spirit, meaning that he came into the temple willingly under the influence of the Holy Spirit to give him eyes to see that, that maybe that was the day that God would fulfill his promise. Simeon was a man who lived his life on the promises of God, and he reoriented everything about his life, even his daily practices, in order to look for and watch for the fulfillment of those promises. And the same should be true of us. The the normal Christian life is lived under the promises of God. You see, Christianity is all about promises. It's all about promises. Every other religion is about agreement, right? You do this, and that deity will provide you with what you want. But Christianity stands in and says, it's all offer. It's all invitation. It's all promise. Christianity stands in stark contrast to every other religion, not not putting forth agreements or, or contracts that spell out how you can get what you want from God. Rather, it lays itself out as pure, unapologetic offer. Christianity simply says to you today, take it, receive it, have from God what your soul longs for, not because you earned it, not because you brokered a deal with God, but simply because God in his generous heart opens up to you with his promises. We as Christians like Simeon here live by promises and to live by promises is the audacious, comforting way of life that we all want. Living by the promises of God means showing God his own handwriting, claiming for ourselves what God has already committed himself to do. We show God his own handwriting, that he himself has made us certain promises, and we are receiving those promises by faith, not as a demand, but as a gift. We take as Christians the check of God's promises and authorize them by our faith. And we show God his handwriting. God, you said you would do this. Show him his own handwriting. That he's committed himself to it. And we attach ourselves to it by faith. But that word is the key, right? Ah, faith. (laughs) For many of us, that's the central problem, isn't it? We don't often have a faith strong enough to to show God his own handwriting in his promises anyways. We we, we don't feel like we have enough faith to authorize those checks of God's promises. Why is that? Why do we lack such faith in the promises of God? I think there's many reasons, but one I think we see in this Luke 2 text is this. We suffer from the problem of generalizing the promises of God. We generalize the promises of God. You see, Simeon had been given a personal promise. 
It was not enough for him to simply believe that God would eventually make good on his promise to redeem Israel. No, he received a personal promise. And because of that, he was able to to wait in faith. When we receive, listen to this, when we receive God's promises as promises made to us, to you, to me, personally, our faith is much more likely to attach to it. Why is that? Because generalized promises, I don't think they connect with our hearts that feel so guilty and failing so often. Many of us feel a sense of our own unworthiness to be promised anything. We, we know ourselves and we know we, we probably shouldn't be promised a thing. And with that, when that type of heart, the heart that feels its own unworthiness before God, when that type of heart hears a general promise of God, it automatically defaults into this type of thinking. Yeah, but that's for them. But that promise is probably meant for others. We, we won't say that out loud, but we think it to ourselves. When, when the promises of God are just generalized, the, the guilty heart always thinks, yeah, that's probably for others. But what we see about God in this story of Simeon is that God is not in the business of laying over the world a thin layer of generalized promises. God gets specific. God gets specific to Simeon, and he wants to get specific with you. Every promise that God has made is made to you as a Christian. It is not a general promise to just lay over the pain of the world. It is a promise invited to you, made specifically to you. And so, for, for example, the, the promise of his love, that he will be a loving God, is not a generalized promise that communicates that somewhere there's a loving God. No, it's a promise he will love you. Or the grace of God. The promise that God will be gracious in Christ. It's not a generalized promise that rations out pardon. No, it's a promise that God will be gracious to you. Do you hear the promises of God addressed to you specifically? Do you hear the promises of his provision, of his love, of his grace, of his nearness? Are those, do those just simply bounce off your guilty heart thinking that, yeah, that's just for everyone else? Everyone else who's probably doing a little bit better than I am can probably attach themselves to that promise. No. God's promises are specific to us, and we can receive them by faith. The Christian life is lived by promises. By showing God his own handwriting and then claiming those promises as being addressed to us personally. That's, that's some of what we see in this section in Luke 2. That God does not want to just give you a general promise, 
But he wants you to know, especially in this Advent season, friends, that everything he's committed himself to do in the world, he's committed himself to do for you, with you. He knows you, friend. He sees you. He does not see a blob of humanity covering this earth. He sees the specificity of your life and attaches all of his promises to your personal situation. When we let it get that specific, we can begin to have faith and like Simeon here, live by promises. Receive this promise-making God. And specifically, for this Advent season, there is a promise that we are invited to take hold of. Advent invites us to, to both look back, right? We, we, we look back and see that God has made good on his promise to send a Savior, and then it also turns our attention forward, inviting us to believe that God will finish the job. Sending his son again to, to reestablish the rule of a good God and to restore a good world. Advent is not just about the nativity scene. Advent is not just cozy Jesus in a manger. Advent is about and invites us to look forward to when Jesus will come again. That he will come to reestablish peace in this world. And this is the promise that connects with our longing for relief. You see, Advent tells us that God does not suffer from bystander apathy. You, you know what that term means, bystander apathy? It's a, it's a term that's been coined whenever there's some person going through a crisis or going through something, and those who are around them do nothing about it, N never intervene. The, the bystanders around that situation do nothing to prevent it. We saw this in October, just a couple months ago, when a woman on a Philadelphia public train was sexually assaulted in front of a crowd on that train, and no one did anything, not even called 911. What we learn from Advent is that God does not suffer from bystander apathy. He has sent his son into the world in order to, the first time, attend to our greatest problem of sin. And he will send his son again in order to finish the job in order to wipe our world from every evil affliction. Everything we saw in those pictures will be wiped away. And God himself will establish justice and peace throughout the world. That's the promise that you are invited into in Advent. Not just to look back at how Christ came the first time, but to remember that he will come again to finish the job. And it's that that should give us hope in this season. And it's to that promise that I want to focus on for the rest of our time. So to do this, to think about this coming of Jesus again, I, I want you to flip over in your Bibles or scroll through your app to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25. 
There are two aspects that show up in Isaiah 25 that I hope will, will warm our hearts and make us expectant. For those who don't, aren't familiar with the Bible, Isaiah is near the middle. Isaiah 25. Let's read verses 6 through 9 and explore some of this promise of what will happen when Jesus comes again. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The first aspect of this promise of Jesus's second coming is a relief from death, right? Isaiah in in his prophecy describes death as a a veil that hangs over all of humanity. And and remember that the Bible presents itself, presents the idea that that we don't live in a a closed universe in which all that exists is is simply uh, visible to the naked eye. No, the, the, the Bible puts forward an, what's called an open system in which there is a God and a reality beyond the material world that we see. But here in Isaiah 25, it puts forward the picture of a great veil, a dark covering that closes off our universe from the God who gave it life. Death is a dark partition between us and the God of indestructible life. That's what we feel. That's, what, that's the weight that is covering over all peoples. But the promise of Isaiah 25 is that there is coming a day in which this dark covering or this partition is completely swallowed up. What hangs over humanity as a veil of death will be swallowed up. And Isaiah even puts a timestamp on it. It will be swallowed up forever. Think about this, friends. Death will not just cease to be inevitable like we experience it now, but it will be unthinkable, impossible. Isaiah's promise that is in reality pointing forward to when Jesus will come again tells us that the God of life will rend that dark curtain coming back again to the world in order to establish indestructible life back on the planet. God will swallow up death forever. Death will become unthinkable. And this destruction of death that Isaiah shows here will have a a personally cathartic relief. Did you see that? Remember, the promises of God are specific to you. Do you see that in the text? 
the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Every tear that has been shed either directly or indirectly associated with the terrible reign of death will be wiped away. Every personal tear from every personal face will be wiped away by God himself. So I have, I have two kids, and my son cries all the time, so I don't wipe away his tears. But my daughter, who's older, when she cries, I, I, I try to make an effort to wipe away her tears and, and help her recover. <laughs> and when I wipe away her tears, let me tell you what I don't do. You know, obviously I'm taller than her. She's about this tall. When I wipe away her tears, I don't do this. And just walk away. <laughs> I don't take my palm and just smush her face in order to dry the tears away. What I do, friends, is I get down on my knees at her level and I take my thumbs and I wipe the tears off her cheeks. I look at her eyes that are still full of tears and I wipe that away with my thumb to both wipe away the tear but also to remove the blurriness of those tears so that she can see her father's face smiling back at her with comfort and assurance. This is what it means for God to wipe away our tears. Every tear, every tear that you have cried in your lifetime, wiped away in relief. Every tear shed in the last couple of years, every tear shed in 2021, every tear shed this month, every tear shed this last week, God himself will get down on your level, take in some ways his own finger and wipe away those tears from your face in order that you could be relieved, but also so that the blurriness of that pain, of that desperation, of that hurt can be wiped away and you can see the face of God smiling back at you with comfort and reassurance. God will swallow up death forever and he will wipe away tear from every eye. To that we say, come, Lord Jesus. Second, the aspect of, of this great promise, another one of these, is the promise that Isaiah lays out as a restoration of dignity. It says this, And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. As image bearers of God... Human beings have inherent dignity, right? We, we talk a lot about that. But it is a dignity that has been violated. It is a dignity that has been vandalized in many ways. In some ways, we, we violate our own dignity by our own sin, right? If you read further in Isaiah, it goes to chapter 44, where Isaiah puts forward this picture of the stupidity of our sin, <laughs> 
and the idolatry of our hearts to show just how much of a loss of dignity we suffer when we actually give ourselves to idols. It, it kind of jokingly talks about how we construct with our own hands this thing that we love and we, we look to it to serve us even though we've made it with our own hands and we become its servants. We lose dignity as we grovel before idols, groveling before money groveling before sex, groveling before relationship and work. You become a servant of these things. You were made as an image bearer of God and you serve these things. It's a loss of dignity. It's a vandalization of our dignity as human beings. And that willingly. But for many of us also, our, our dignity has been vandalized unwillingly. Many of us feel as though our dignity was robbed from us by the sins of others, right? But regardless of how our dignity has been vandalized, Isaiah promises here that on this day, this promised day that we look forward to, it will be fully restored when Jesus comes again. The reproach of every Christian will be removed from all the earth. Everything that has vandalized your dignity, everything that has violated your personhood and has taken away, or at least vandalized, that dignity will be removed. It won't be, it says, from all the earth. (laughs) You can't find it. Whatever reproach, whatever shame you've walked through, God will wipe it from the face of the earth. That on, on that day, listen to me, Christian, you will need no more convincing that you are pure. You will need no more convincing that God has washed you clean by the blood of Jesus. We need convincing now, right? We need remembering, we need rehearsing on that day. Shame will not just be nowhere to be found. It will be unthinkable, unreasonable, impossible for us to associate with ourselves. Because God will have washed it from the face of the earth. A restored dignity. And to that, we say, come Lord Jesus. This is the hope that Advent invites you into, friend. The the, the promise, yes, the reflection of a God who came in the first place to save us from our sin, but also the promise of a God who will return, who will finish the job, relieve us from death, and restore our dignity. This is the hope of Advent. And to close, the question still remains, how do we wait? (laughs) Great, that sounds like a wonderful promise, but how do we wait? How do we attach ourselves by faith to that? Here's one way. First, let me say this. Let me tell you how you don't do it. You you don't look at the news (laughs) or the headlines and think conspiracy theories. (laughs) You don't associate the Apache helicopters with the locusts in Revelation. 
Christians are weird, man. You don't look for conspiracies. You don't obsess about conspiracies. What you do, friend, while looking forward, you continue to bring yourself back to that first coming of Jesus. That's going to help you to really look forward to that day when Jesus comes again. It's going to assure you, actually, that it will happen. When When you look at the cross, When you look at the resurrection and you see the lengths to which God went in order to save us in the first place, you have to be left with the conclusion of why would he not come finish the job? We can compare it. You know, Paul does this in Romans 5 when he, when he talks about how, you know, if God saved us while we were still nothing more than sinners, surely he will continue to love us as we are made more righteous. It's an assurance by comparison. If God did this, surely he'll do this. And one of the ways that we can be assured that Christ will return is by looking at and reflecting on the lengths to which he came to save us in the first place. That the Son of God left the praises of heaven running toward humanity to take on flesh, not to condemn us, but to save us. And he lived a perfect life, living under the weight of a suffering world just like all of us, subjecting himself to mockery, to the fools of that society, and eventually allowing himself to be crucified on a cross, to bear the punishment of our own sin, and to destroy sin within its very stronghold of death. Jesus destroys that by his payment on the cross and then rises again three days later, showing that he has indeed conquered death. It's already happened. Death is a languishing enemy. And when we see that, we can be assured in this Advent season, friends, that he will come again and he will finish the job. And for now, we wait. We attach ourselves to that great promise. We whet our appetite for the world that is to come. And we say in faith, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this great promise that you... You are not content to just give us the assurance of your provision or even your grace or your love, but you have given us the radical promise of a new world, of relief from death, of peace with you, with others, and within ourselves as our dignity is restored and shame is wiped from the face of the earth. God, I thank you for that promise. And I ask that your Holy Spirit, in many ways like you did for Simeon, would help us to wait for that promise, that this Advent season would not just be about the coziness of carols and the warm nature of friendship, but that we would actually look forward 
and see that, that Christmas is not just cozy. Advent is revolution. And Jesus will come again in order to establish justice and peace in the world. And while we wait, God, would you give us faith? Would you help us to trust in your faithfulness? To see all of what you've already done and assure our hearts that you will come again. We will see you face to face, tears wiped away, and dignity fully restored. Assure us and comfort us with that hope as we wait in a painful and suffering world. And we say together, come Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we ask. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.